0: We've identified the overall theme of the book as very simply the deliverance of God, of these people, uh, from the land of bondage, the iron furnace of affliction, uh, bringing them to the place of service unto the Lord. So you have those two themes, deliverance and the consequent service and worship that the people then, in response to that redemption, uh, owe to the Lord. Now, in in the survey that we're looking at here, I'm seeking to basically uh, summarize the book in four broad categories. Why did God deliver these people? How did God deliver them? Who is it that God delivered, and where did he deliver them? Those four uh, issues, I think, will give us a fair summary. Uh, synopsis of the message uh, of this important book as I've indicated this book in many ways is not only the historical uh, but also the theological foundation for much that we have in the rest of the scriptures I think there's hardly a doctrine of the gospel that we are not going to see in one way or another uh, defined for us in the book of Exodus so it is an extremely important theological book Now, our attention, first of all, uh, has been then on the reason God delivered these people. And I'm summarizing this in two broad statements, and I think we've already developed the first of these thoughts. The first reason that God delivered Israel from the land of bondage was because of the covenant promise that he had made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And we have here, then, this deliverance that is founded upon a covenant promise. A promise that uh, was made inviolable by the guarantee that God had given to it by virtue of this mutually binding agreement uh, between himself and men. Now, this Abrahamic covenant, I'm not going to take time uh, this morning to review the whole covenant concept, uh, but I would remind you, I think we've done this in the past, but it is absolutely foundational to the whole uh, purpose of God and program of God in saving his people. All of the salvific dealings that God has with his people, I think we can define in terms of covenant. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and that first announcement of the promise of salvation in the seed of the woman, Uh, that would be the reverser of the curse, that seed then continues on, and I would certainly recommend as you read your Old Testament scriptures uh, that you pay attention to this development of the seed, it's the seed of the woman uh, that then is the seed of Abraham, that then is the seed of David uh, that we ultimately see coming Uh, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us very directly, does he not, uh, in the New Testament that that seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. So at the heart of every one of these covenant promises uh, was the revelation and further development of the promise of salvation in Christ. So here is this promise that was given to Abraham, that uh, there would be a seed that would come from him that would be the source of blessing uh, to the entire world. But uh, it appeared that that was very slow in coming. Uh, It appeared that the fulfillment of that was many times jeopardized. If you go back to the book of Genesis, seemingly jeopardized by some of the foolishness uh, of Abraham himself. Uh, And by the time we end the book of Genesis, uh, we have uh, what appears to be uh, a very paltry fulfillment Uh, of the promise that was given to Abraham that there would be a magnificent and numerous seed that was coming from him that would be the source of blessing to the entire earth. Uh, Just 70 some people. Uh, And here they're in exile. Uh, They're not in the land that God had promised to give to Abraham. That was one of the promises. Uh, They are here in a place where for some years they enjoyed uh, a great deal of privilege. I, I don't want us to think that Uh, that entire 400-year period uh, in which Israel was in the land of Egypt. Uh, They were there in slavery and bondage for that entire period of time. Uh, The book of Genesis ends with these people having uh, a pretty good go of it. Uh, They were well favored, uh, and they were receiving many advantages and many benefits from the Egyptians to them. Uh, It was not, at the very beginning anyway, a place of great bondage. But various things happen, and I'm not going to get into all of the Egyptian history and uh, whatever that caused things to change, but we learn in Exodus in the chapter 1 that there arose a king ultimately uh, that did not know Joseph. Uh, And this king that was ignorant uh, of Joseph uh, was now fearful of these people that had come from the family of Joseph and sought to subdue them. And we have the beginning of the oppression during this time. Uh, but not the entire 400 years. Remember that God told Abraham that they, his people would be in this place of Egypt for some 400 years. Uh, and indeed they were. Uh, but not all of it. Uh, not all of it was in the place of great bondage. But for some 200 or so years, indeed it was. Uh, and that bondage and that affliction and that... Uh, Servitude increased uh, and God now remembered the covenant uh, that he had made with Abraham and it was now time uh, to establish this as the promised nation. But the second reason, and I say we have, uh, I think, developed that thought already. Uh, This is just to get us a running start, myself a running start as to where we are here. Uh, But the second reason that God delivered these people was because of the concern that he had for the people themselves. We go back to uh, chapter 2. We looked at those closing uh, verses, I think, which brings these two uh, ideas together for us. The closing verses of chapter 2, and it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up uh, unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect under them. He remembered the covenant, but also he had here a concern, a compassion that caused him to act in behalf of these people that were now held in this place of bondage. God heard the cries of distress. Uh, He heard their agony, and we can multiply uh, references here whereby God uh, so is uh, conscious, as it were, uh, of the afflictions and the difficulties and the agonies that these people were experiencing. If you skip over to chapter 22, we find ultimately the reason why God uh, listened to the prayers uh, and to the groanings of this people. Uh, The last uh, part of that verse... The last part of verse 27. And when he crieth unto me, that I will hear, for I am gracious. Why is it that God was concerned? And why is it that God began then this great deliverance of these people? Uh, Because he is gracious. And that's the bottom line. Why does God deliver people from the bondage of sin? Why does God deliver any of us from the furnace of our affliction, Uh, whatever that affliction is, but particularly as we bring this into this context of uh, salvation, uh, it boils down to the grace of God, that grace that is intrinsic uh, in the very person and the very character of God. God did not deliver them just, and I think this is important for us to realize. God did not deliver them only because they were slaves. He did not deliver them because he felt sorry for them. did not deliver them because they themselves were in bondage. Uh, Again, I'm not going to set this all up in the context of uh, Egyptian history, but uh, this little nation of Israel were not the only people in the world at that time uh, that were in bondage. Uh, There were many other nations that were under the same domination of Egypt uh, and held in bondage and affliction. Uh, But yet they were not delivered. And they were not the objects of God's uh, demonstration of grace. Why is it that God demonstrated grace to Israel? Why did he reveal his grace to Israel? Not because of Israel. Not because they were anything special not because there was something inherent within them that generated and called forth the grace of God. Deuteronomy makes this clear. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, or chapter 9 rather. Uh, Some great statements here concerning the reason God brought these people out uh, of the land of bondage. Deuteronomy, of course, is the last sermon that Moses gave to these people before he died. Uh, And he puts things before them very, very forthrightly. Uh, look at verse, uh, look at verse five of uh, chapter nine. Not for thy righteousness, nor for the uprightness of thine heart dost thou go to possess their land, but for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out before thee, that He may perform the word which the Lord sware unto thy father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. Remember and forget not how that uh, how thou provokest the Lord thy God to wrath in the wilderness, and so forth and so forth. Uh, and you've been rebellious against the Lord. These people were sinners. Uh, they were held in an external bondage. Uh, they were held against their wills, seemingly, by... Uh, the forces of the Egyptians that held them in slavery and bondage. There was that objective state uh, of bondage yes. But subjectively, these people uh, were, uh, were sinners, and they were wicked, and they were rebellious. I don't want us to get the impression, please, please do not have the impression uh, that Israel was there in the land of Egypt suffering for the cause of righteousness. Uh, they were not there as... Uh, the Puritans, as it were, uh, of their day and of their age that were now being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Uh, that is far, far from the truth. Uh, the Scripture makes it clear uh, that the Israelites were as pagan as the Egyptians that held them in bondage. Uh, they were not a bunch of Jehovah worshippers, I say, that were there being held and being uh, persecuted for righteousness sake they were not there for religious reasons uh, they were wicked and they were rebellious and i say they were guilty of the same idolatry they were guilty of the same uh, paganism that the egyptians were guilty of the scripture tells us that they worship the same gods. well why is it then why is it then that god put a difference uh, between israel and between the egyptians Why were the Egyptians judged and Israel delivered? Uh, It was grace. It was grace. Uh, They did not deserve it. Egyptians got what they deserved. But Israel did not. They were the recipients of grace. And God, because of that sovereign grace, based upon covenant promise, but demonstrated now. Why, Why this particular generation of Israel? Uh, I, I say that personally guilty and uh, idolaters in, in, every, in every way uh, and their behavior in the wilderness reflected, uh, reflected that. Uh, and it wasn't long before they were back to the same idolatry and the same paganism that characterized their day-by-day practice uh, in the land of Egypt. Oh, there was a remnant. There always has been a remnant according to grace even there in the land of Egypt. Uh, but for the most part, uh, the nation was guilty of idolatry and paganism, but nonetheless, God redeemed them. Uh, he redeemed them. Now, the implications of this and the picture of this in terms of uh, our spiritual salvation are, uh, are remarkable. Uh, and it's not without significance that the Old Testament and the New Testament uses this Exodus occasion uh, as the great picture prophecy. Uh, as the great picture illustration uh, of what God does for his people uh, in salvation. Held in bondage, every one of us held in a bondage uh, by Satan, by the powers of wickedness, uh, an objective alienation that we know from God. Uh, Held, as it were, uh, by external forces uh, in this bondage of sin, but yet subjectively as well. Uh, we are uh, demonstrating that hatred and that alienation from God. Given the first chance, we show our sin, uh, undeserving. But God has delivered us by grace. It's by grace, by that which we do not deserve, that which we do not merit, that which we cannot earn. Uh, God has so delivered us uh, and brought us to the place of great liberty. Uh, and we have... In Christ, then, in this great redemption, the exodus that Christ has performed for his people, uh, we know this liberty. So it never hurts for us to remember the grace of God uh, in delivering us from sin. All right, now that's why God delivered. As so you go through this entire book, you keep that in mind. Here is this inviolable covenant promise that unconditionally has its focus in the person of the coming Christ. And the redeeming of Israel as a nation. All right, We have to understand this. Uh, this Exodus, and, and let me make, you know, I think this is obvious, but let me make the statement. Uh, you, you understand that God bringing these people out physically from the land of Egypt was not uh, to be equated with their spiritual salvation. Not every Israelite that marched through the Red Sea was converted uh, in a spiritual sense. Now, many of them were, uh, and many of them were not. Uh, But what God was doing for the nation became a picture of what he does spiritually to every individual soul. We want to keep that in mind. But there is a sense, and I want us to understand this, there is a sense in which the deliverance of national Israel was an integral part of God's fulfilling that ultimate promise concerning Christ. Christ came through the nation of Israel. He had to. Uh, by virtue of the covenant manifestation and the covenant promise. There had to be an Israel. Uh, There had to be an Israel nationally if there was to be a Christ Uh, as far as the development of this promise is concerned. Here's the seed of the woman. Here's the seed of Abraham in Isaac and then in Jacob. uh, Is this seed going to come? Well, there had then to be a nation. Uh, Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 9 that of uh, Israel... Uh, are all of the promises and the covenants and the law and the blessing but of whom concerning the flesh Christ came who is overall God blessed forever uh, there had to be there had to be in Israel uh, if there was to be uh, the coming here of the redeemer so all of this even the deliverance of this nation as an entity uh, became part of God's overall fulfillment uh, of that covenant of sending our redeemer Uh, in the person of his Son.
1: All right, now the second
0: issue that I want us to address is the means. How is it, then, uh, that God delivered these people? How is it that God delivered these people? And he did it in a way. He did it in a way to make it unmistakably clear that the deliverance from bondage uh, was totally his work. He did it in such a way, I say, to make it absolutely clear that the deliverance from this bondage was absolutely his work there was no cooperation uh... there was no uh... there was no helping him in making this deliverance on the contrary uh, all of this was the work of god and that has great theological and spiritual implications then as we see the great antitype of this the great uh... the great picture prophecy of this that uh, demonstrates that what we say is a monergistic salvation. All right, this is—I'll give you this term. Right, you big people. Uh, we, we talk about monergism and we talk about synergism. Uh, monergism is a one-working. Synergism is a working together. And how we view salvation in those two terms has many, many far-reaching, profound implications. Uh, and our salvation is not synergistic. Uh, It is not that we are working with God in order to accomplish that purpose. Uh, It is not that God does his part and then we do our part. That is synergism, uh, and uh, we we don't like that. Uh, It it is monergism, right? It is God working alone. God working alone. God sets the terms. God is the initiator. He is the effector. He is the agent. He is the accomplisher uh, of our salvation. And the book of Exodus makes this clear. Here is a visible picture uh, of this great work of redemption. Uh, And you can't read this book without being absolutely impressed that if there was to be deliverance from this place of bondage, it was God that did it. Uh, I think it's not uh, without significance here that we do have this little episode uh, concerning the life of Moses, remember. Uh, when Moses was there in the palace and being raised. And Moses had a heart for his people. He had great compassion for his people. Uh, and he saw his people being afflicted and uh, he was moved to do something uh, to relieve uh, their difficulty. And remember uh, remember, as he saw that one day when one of the taskmasters uh, was beating up on one of his people and uh, he intervened and he killed Uh, He murdered uh, that taskmaster uh, and uh, tried to bring deliverance by his own strength and by his own power. And it didn't work. Uh, All it did was to put him in exile for 40 years. Uh, And I think that's not without significance, and it stands in contrast here. Uh, Here are the efforts of man. Even a man that was good, even a man that had a great heart and a great concern for his people, did not have the wherewithal to effect this deliverance. Here's man's failures. Now God comes. And without frustration and without failure, uh, we have God delivering these people from this iron furnace of affliction. I think when you uh, put this in the, again, the context uh, of history, uh, and we realize that at this time, Egypt is the strongest and the most powerful nation uh, on the face of God's earth. Uh, really in many ways in that period that uh, was the glory days uh, of Egyptian strength and Egyptian power uh, in what we call the New Kingdom. Uh, Linda Abrams is here so I I don't want to get too technical because she'll disagree with me on what I'm going to say here because you're still following the old school here. You still want Amenhotep too. You don't want to give that up, do you? You don't want to give that up. Uh, I've given that up. Well, I know, but you see, I, I'm willing to admit that you know ed- education progresses here. Uh, don't don't be stagnant. Don't be afraid to say what? No, 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 no. We'll, we'll talk. We'll talk later. We'll talk later. Uh, there, there was the, the key thing, and we. I, I think we talked about this the other day, right? When I set this up, uh, given the biblical evidence, we must maintain. A 15th century date for the exodus. All right. Given the biblical data, uh, I must date the exodus to the middle of the 15th century. Uh, and precisely, if we take the chronology of 1st Kings, uh, we want to put the exodus at 1446. Uh, 1445, 1446, that's okay. Uh, that I must be dogmatic on. I must maintain a 15th century date for the exodus, given the biblical evidence. Now, as we seek to plug that in to the uh, Egyptian history, uh, then then we uh, try to relate things and identify who that pharaoh is. I think it's not without significance. This is always, we talk about this, that the pharaoh here is not named. Pharaoh is not named. Uh, at, At the time when Egyptian power is at its height and if you know anything about Egyptian history and Egyptian record keeping, these people loved their names to be uh, recorded, right? The walls at Karnak and whatever else you have—you have name after name. They loved to see their name in print uh, or in stone or whatever. Uh, and and they, they were great kings, right? And here is the here is the preservation of their uh, of their uh, of their historical accomplishments. But we have the divine history given to us here. Uh, we have the history uh, by the only omniscient historian that has ever, ever existed. Uh, and when it comes to recording the great kings of the new empire, uh, it's just Pharaoh. It's just Pharaoh. We're, they're not named. Uh, but later on, this is interesting to me, later on in biblical history, uh, when we come to the period of Egyptian decline, where Egyptian power was, eh, you know, even the Assyrian—they're nothing but a broken reed. You're, they have no strength. They, now, all of a sudden, we have pharaohs being named. Right here's here's Shishak and here's Necho. Well, that's interesting, but they were no big deal in the world. I think this is God's. I think there's a bit of irony there in, in God's, God's sarcasm. Uh, I, I think it is. I think it's a bit of divine sarcasm uh, that the very thing that these uh, that these ancient kings lived for, uh, God God ignores, all right? and so we're not told. But but having said that, we do have various records from Egypt, and we can relate these things together for years. Uh, given a particular Egyptian chronology, we argued as conservatives. Uh, that the Pharaoh of the Exodus was a fellow by the name of Amenhotep II. Uh, Amenhotep II uh, has become famous only because we as conservatives have made him the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Right? That's, that's why he is famous. Uh, in Egyptian history no big deal for the most part. Uh, after him we have Ramesses coming a little bit later. We have Ramesses II which is obviously a famous king and before him we have others. Uh, but there has been a revision of Egyptian chronology that Mrs. Abrams is not willing to accept. Uh, but I, I think it's I think it's there probably, uh, which which maintains that the same date for the Exodus, but by altering this, this puts the Pharaoh of the Exodus, Exodus at, at, as Tutmos three. All right, don't roll your eyes at me, woman. You say, <laughs> don't roll your eyes at me. Uh, in, instead of Amenhotep two, II, Tutmos three. Now, I, I think that's remarkable in many ways, and, and I, I tend to argue this now, although I argue as a conservative for Amenhotep II, and that's when Mrs. Abrams got my stuff. Uh, but, but I, I think I'm, I'm willing to change now. So I, I reevaluate uh, what's going on. But, but here, this, this is, I think, the, the neat thing here. Of all of these early kings of the new empire, Thutmose III was the most powerful militarily. Uh, he had the greatest military operation. Uh, we know from his historic record that he was constantly going up into Palestine, uh, establishing, uh, defense outposts at Megiddo and, uh, Hazor, and, and, we have all of this recorded. He was the greatest of the military kings, uh, of these, uh, of the 18th, 18th dynasty. Now, you know, big deal. Except, except if this is Thutmose III if it is the greatest militarily powerful king uh, during this period what is he uh, as far as God was concerned You see, uh, he was nothing and all of his military power and all of his military might and strength and ability met absolutely nothing uh, against the hand uh, and the arm of almighty God Uh and I say he has uh, he has a substantial historical accomplishment apart from uh, apart from the scripture. Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to be dogmatic here. Uh, but whoever it is, whoever it is, uh, and it doesn't ever cross my mind that I could be wrong here. But that's uh, but i am not be dogmatic. Uh, what what does this display? You see, what does this display against? Uh, the strongest, what are the nations as far as God is concerned? Isaiah says they're but a drop in a bucket. Say. But a drop in a bucket. Uh, and it's good for us to plug this in today. All right, It's good for us to plug this in today. Uh, we, we, we get so myopic at times, and uh, we, we look at our day, and, and we see the difficulties, and we see the troubles, and we see all of... And it's there. But my question to you, what is all of this before God? What is all of this before God? God, uh, in the face of Tutmos Three, did not uh, did not wonder how in the world he was going to control uh, this mighty king. He was nothing. He was nothing, and God used the nothingness of this great king to accomplish His purpose. Now it was tough going. Uh, and, and and I dare say that the Israelites that were there going through all of this didn't quite uh, couldn't quite see how all of this was working. And this is remarkable. I may develop this theme. I think I've done it before uh, in, in a series of something or other. But but did you ever notice? Uh, and I, I think this is remarkable and not without significance. And it demonstrates how myopic we get and get so concerned about uh, the only part of what we see uh, that we lose sight of the overall picture and we lose sight of the overall uh, plan and program of God as soon as Moses came all right. as soon as Moses came uh, and announced that God was going to deliver these people that God had heard their cries and heard their, uh, their their distress and God was going to deliver these people from this iron furnace of affliction as soon as they got that word you can see this uh, right, in, in chapter 5. Uh, is it chapter 5? No, no, no. No, verse chapter 4. Oh, it's the last verse of chapter 4. Right, That's why I thought chapter 5, because I see chapter 5 right there. Uh, and the people believed. Last verse. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that He had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. What a word of comfort this was! Here is this promise of deliverance. The people believe, they rejoice, they worship the God. And the first thing that happens? Now, then, chapter five. The first thing that happens when they receive this word of deliverance is what? Hey, you want You you've got all this time on your hand. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're, we're gonna take away, uh, giving you the straw, and you go get your own straw. And I want you to make the same amount of brick, so the very first thing that happened after the Lord promised here and revealed himself as the deliverer, the very first thing that happened is the bondage got worse. See? this is the first thing that happened uh, the bondage got worse, and they were in greater labor and greater toil and greater difficulties after this word of promise, and they now became discouraged. this is not what i this is not what I thought it was going to be you see. This was not what I thought it was going to be. And so, therefore, they began to rebel, and they got upset with Moses, they got upset with God, even before they get out. Now, how true to life that is, isn't it? How true to life that is. Uh, We take the promise of God, we believe the promise of God, uh, and and we get our hearts fixed on that, and then all of a sudden, uh, instead of our circumstance getting better, it gets worse, and this is not what I thought it was going to be. You see, This is not what I thought it was going to be. Uh, because I say we are so myopic and we just, we just determine uh, so often the power of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God as it relates just to this little area in which I stand. You see. No, we have, to, we have to keep in mind the big picture. We keep in mind the big picture. And all of this, even even the increased difficulties, even the increased bondage that Israel was experiencing, having received the word of promise, Uh, was part of God's program uh, that would highlight His grace, that would highlight His power, that would highlight His unfrustratable purpose. Let Pharaoh try it. You just let these people try what they will to frustrate my purpose. You let them do whatever they... and I will show you that they can do nothing ultimately to to thwart the cause and the purpose uh, of my plan. Now, I say it is important for us to keep this in mind. Uh, in, In the day in which we live, we... We see uh, we see the wickedness and we see the uh, the absolute injustice and we see all of this stuff and it appears and even us even us even even we even we uh, who who confess a belief in the sovereignty of God who confess this assurance that God works all things we we start to get uh, and this is not what I thought it was going to be uh, it's not what I thought it was going to be and we begin to Doubt, and we begin to worry, and we get anxious, and we get, you see, distrust. What nation is there? What power? What power is there on the face of the earth historically? And this is this is why I think it's important uh, to, to to know a little bit about the ancient Near Eastern history in which the Old Testament is occurring. What, what nation then uh, could ever stand against God? Uh, And we have example after example of this people, of that people, that on earth were powerful, on earth were, uh, were terrible people. But they were the dupes, and they were the agents of the providence of God. There's the Babylonians, the agents of the providence of God. There were the Assyrians, the agents of the providence of God. There were the Egyptians, the agents of the providence of God. Did they know it? Of course not. But that's not the point. God was controlling and God was was manipulating. God manipulated. You like that word? This is a good word. Theologically, God was manipulating all of the affairs of ancient history for the fulfillment of his purpose. Now, why do we think that he doesn't do that anymore? You see uh, what what gives us the right to assume that now God is not still manipulating and controlling and directing all the affairs of this world for his purpose uh, and for his glory? I submit to you that God hasn 't changed uh, that he is still upon that royal throne and he still rules and he still governs, and there is nothing happening, and there is nothing that will happen that is Apart from the fulfillment of his perfect will. Does that make us passive? Of course not. We don't. A belief in the sovereignty of God, and I've talked about this before, a belief in the sovereignty of God does not generate passivity. Uh, it does not generate, well, let's just sit back and watch the world go by. No, no, no. We use the means, but it's a trust. It is a trust. Uh, and the book of Exodus here is, is so remarkable to me in demonstrating that here are the most powerful forces on God's earth that were doing that were doing everything they could do to thwart the purpose of God, and they were nothing. They were nothing. We've got two kings. All right, we've got we're going to see two kings at battle here. Uh, here's the king of Egypt, powerful, wicked, uh, had had everything that human uh, that human power was defined by. Had it all. And here we have God, we have God, uh, there upon his throne. And Pharaoh, uh, be it Tutmos three or Amenhotep two or whoever you want it to be, uh, was absolutely nothing, was absolutely nothing uh, in the face of Almighty God. So how did God deliver? Two things that I'll focus on here, Then, having made that general remark. Uh, two things that we're going to see. How did God deliver? Number one, God delivered by power. He delivered them by His power. And number two, He delivered by blood. All right, These are the two great themes as to how God delivered the people from Egypt. First of all, by His power. And secondly, by the blood. Now, explicit statements. Let me just show you some explicit statements uh, here that highlight something uh, of the power uh, of God. Look at chapter, uh, Look at chapter 3. Uh, Verse 19. And and this is good too. Alright, this is good too. That God, when when God calls Moses, this is in the chapter here that uh, we have the call of Moses. And God tells Moses up front exactly what's going to happen. right, exactly what's going to happen. God tells Moses up front. I'm going to use you, he says, to deliver these people from the land of bondage. It's going to happen. And I'm going to give you some signs here that it's going to happen. And we'll maybe look at some of those signs that God gave you. But let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to get down there. You're going to get down there uh, and, and, and go to Pharaoh and, and, and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh, I'm telling you right now, Pharaoh... Is going to say, Get out of here. No way. No way. Now, I'm telling you up front. But don't be worried about that. I'm going to harden his heart. All right? I'm going to harden his heart. He's going to harden his heart. I'm going to harden his heart. He's going to harden his heart. And I don't want you to be surprised. Don't want you to be surprised when you get in there and Pharaoh says no. All right? That's what it says here. Verse 19. And I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. Now, I'm telling you this up front. I'm telling you this up front. He's not going to let you go. Now, you can see what assurance that would give Moses. So, finally, Moses agrees here uh, to be the leader of these people. He goes to Egypt, and sure enough, he goes to Pharaoh. You know, we'd expect, right, almost in our stupidity, uh, in our being naive, uh, that you know, here's the will of God. Here's the will of God. Pharaoh, here is God's will. He says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, okay, well, if that's God's will, then, you know, go. No. Uh, It could happen sometimes, but that's not the way it normally works. And it didn't work this way. And Pharaoh says, who's your God? This God doesn't mean anything to me. I'm tut- the III. That's what he said. He said, so I'm tut- the III. Uh, this God doesn't mean anything to me. doesn't mean anything to me. No. Now, what would Moses say? All right? Mo- if God didn't tell Moses, right? If God didn't tell Moses, Moses, I'm going to let you, hmm and I go in there and let me do it. And Pharaoh says, no, Oh, now what am I going to do? Now what am I going to do? No. No. God told him up front. And when Pharaoh said no, Moses said in himself, I'm I'm just guessing here, Moses, uh, everything is working according to plan here. This is exactly what God said was going to happen. He says no, then then this. There's going to be a tension here. But God says not to worry. I will stretch out my hand. I will stretch out my hand. Now, this is a figure of speech, obviously. Uh, This is what we call an anthropomorphism. God doesn't have a hand, but the hand is the agent of business. Uh, And there's going to be an emphasis here in Exodus about God stretching out his hand. We're going to see God stretching out his arm. Uh, Look look at chapter uh, 6, for instance. Let me just show you a couple of these. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1, Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand uh, shall he let them go, and with a strong hand uh, shall he drive them out of his land. I am the Lord, verse 2. Look at verse uh, 6. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the birds of the Egyptians. I will rid you uh, of their bondage. I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgment. As you read through Exodus, look at the number of times God says, I'm going to stretch out my hand or stretch out my arm. Now, the hand, I say, is that vehicle of activity. It's the agent of business. Uh, the arm, uh, the arm is the agent of power, right? It is that which speaks of power, right? You, you look at your arm there, isn't that an image of power right there? Uh, didn't have me in mind when I use that imagery. Uh, but, But you understand, the arm is the agent here of strength and is the agent of power and ability. And so the Lord says, I will stretch out my arm. These are anthropomorphisms, uh, human terms, body parts uh, that are applied to God to give us some understanding of what God is doing. Now, God is a spirit, right? Our confession tells us that God is a spirit. And as a pure spirit, he does not have body parts. uh, But yet we read of his hands, we read of his arms, his eyes, his head, whatever. Uh, and it, it's a similarity of function. So, with the power of God, uh, symbols of strength. Pharaoh was strong. Pharaoh was strong. Uh, but the arm of Pharaoh was nothing. Uh, was nothing against the arm of God. Uh, he was able. God was able to effect uh, this deliverance. So, there's the power of God. Uh, I'll, I'll look next week. Our time is gone now, but we'll look next week at some of the. Uh, the miracles, the supernatural things that God did uh, in demonstrating that power uh, in delivering these people uh, from the land of bondage. Okay, good little book here. Let's uh, close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in every remembrance that you give us in your word of your grace and of your power uh, to save your people. We're thankful, Lord, that we can testify here today that we are the recipients of that grace, that we are the beneficiaries of that mighty hand and strong arm uh, that you have stretched out to save us. We ask, Lord, that you would give us increased confidence. May we uh, rest in the sureness of your strength and of your power and of your might uh, over all the forces of this world. Uh, Lord, uh, we pray. That you would bring us to the uh, confident security uh, in our hearts as we fix our minds upon the Lord. There is peace, there is peace to those that have their minds, their hearts fixed.